find your way to John chapter 15 this morning. We're going to be chewing away at uh, that epic passage on the, the vine and the branches for the next couple of weeks, and I'm excited to dig in with you this morning. Let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. We're going to read down through verse 11 together. Actually, let's just go ahead and go through 17 together. It says, hear the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he, produ- and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as, I, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. You are the, you, the one who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If, without, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have done... I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than no one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Go ahead and have a seat. As you're finding your way in your seat, it's good to have everyone here this morning. Um, uh, You're in a comfortable chair this morning. Um, now, I understand that's a first world issue, right? Now, we enjoy that first world reality, right, um, and everything. And it's a little warm in here this morning. Don't make me stomp my feet and wake you up, okay? Is that all right with you? I'm just joking with you. But, but, but the reality is, is God has been gracious to us. We finally have our chairs in the room. But I, I wanted, I'm using that as a point to kind of to, to, uh, point to a couple of other needs. If you are interested in helping us finish up the painting that's back here on the the, the sound booth back here, a few other little playing projects throughout the building. Um, we got a couple of little, I mean, literally minor things. But you would like to do it during the week because you have a few extra minutes. Just come talk to me, uh, Gabe or Heather, and we will get everything set up for you. And we'll arrange a time for you to come in the building and you can just go to town. Okay? Um, we don't necessarily have to have a whole work day to make that happen. If we got a few people who have a few extra hours here and there, we can knock out the last of these things. So if you're interested in that, please just come see me, Heather or Gabe. And, uh, and, and we will make sure you are set up to go, okay? Um, this morning, we are transitioning into probably a passage all of us are very, very familiar with, the vine and the branches. And there's something wonderful about this text, but yet something mysterious about this text, because there's much here that 
has uh, rich implications for our life because it's, it's about, one, the reality of who we're connected to and the source of our identity, we're, we're going to talk about, but also the fruit of that identity. It, it's very much going to over, kind of reconnect to what we talked about last week, which is, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so Jesus knows in his disciples' lives that um, they are wondering, after last week's message, as we talked about there at the end of chapter 14, that if they're going to be, con- stay connected to that death-defeating pledge that we have found in Jesus, if they're to obey his commands, if they're to live by the Spirit, man, it's going to take something much bigger than themselves in order to, to, um, to, to see that actually come to realization in our lives. And I think all of us feel that way. Like, we ask the question, right? And it's right to be asked. Like, what fruit... And how do I produce this fruit? I see what you're calling us to. I see what the pattern of this life is. But sometimes it's hard to discern what fruit we are to be pursuing, what first fruit we are, should not be pursuing, and exactly where that fruit comes from. Um, for me, I make a connection to athletics. And I, y'all know I love sports. Um, and if you're into team sports, you'll get this. If you're not, I apologize. <laughs> But if you're into athletics, if you're into team sports, you know that what separates a, separates a good team, a good program, from a not-so-good team or not-so-good program is usually a good coach that builds a good culture, right? That's a little hot right there, guys. Can we pull that down just a little bit? Um, a good culture that will then result in what? Good fruit, good success for the team. And so you and I, in our generation, in our last quarter century, We've had, um, we've had some good examples of this, examples I don't exactly like to highlight this morning. So, you know, for all my Alabama fans, you're going to enjoy hearing a Tennessee fan say the fact that, you know, you, you can't help but celebrate uh, Nick Saban and what he's done there, right? He, he's produced a, and what's made Alabama what it is today is not necessarily just the players, but it's the culture that he's created there that then envelops the players and creates a, a culture that then creates fruit, right? And we, we think about the Patriots. Thank goodness that is about over with. Um, I, again, as another Tennessee fan, and the battle between Tom Brady and, and Peyton Manning, that is one of those things I'm glad is, a, is done. Um, but, but it's still something that we see as epic, right? We see it because they, these, those particular programs, if you're, again, into sports, you know, you know are just uncommon. And they, they're sustainable because they built a culture and they weren't just built on talent. See, that's what the church is. The church is a culture, a grace-driven culture enveloped in the, the person and work of Jesus. It's not just a bunch of talented people who figure out how to produce fruit. And I think sometimes the way the church talks about fruit is exactly the opposite way it's just like you and i've got to generate certain realities in our life if we're going to be a really really good and faithful church no it's god who produces that fruit again as we we talked a little bit about this last week we touched on it briefly but we're going to see more clearly this morning and so in our study here in the john john's gospel what has jesus been doing he he has gathered an initial group of disciples in order to what to teach them what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And as he's doing this, this group of men would then what set the course, would set the culture of the church for all ages. 
And I, and I would argue if, if we are not a people connected back to that, that, that core place of that, of that apostolic church, we have, we've, we've failed somewhere. We've disconnected ourselves from what it means to be the true church. And so what he's been doing, he's been teaching them what to do, what to expect for this time between his first departure, his death and resurrection, ascension to the time he comes back again. Again, we've been kind of unpacking that a little bit the last couple of weeks. But what we need and what we understand on the other side of this is that that's part of it. His departure is integral, right? To the church becoming everything the church is supposed to be. Because if he does not depart, what happens? The church, the spirit doesn't come, and then that fruit doesn't get produced, and therefore it doesn't play a role in the ongoing evangelization of the world. And so at the end of chapter 14, and you can go back there and it says, Jesus um, has been teaching all these things, and finally he says, you know, he, he says, hey guys, let's get up and let's go. Now, is he running from something? No. He sees this as a perfect timing to take this teaching of, 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 of resting in him and doing what he commands and then taking it to another level. And so they get up and they, and, and they go out and they're walking through the city there. We don't know exactly where they went. It doesn't give us that in the text, but we do know that they went on a stroll. And most likely the stroll would happen around the main entrance of the temple because it was the most prominent structure there in Jerusalem. And if you know anything about the architecture of the, of the temple, you would know that engraved among the main entrance was this grapevine, because in Israel, the grapevine was something significant. It represented a, the vineyard that God was planting and, and, and building. And so Jesus, no doubt using that as the backdrop, he says these Words, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. My father is the gardener. And and in that moment, he's taking everything the Jews know about being the vineyard of God, and he's taking it to its ultimate fulfillment. He's driving them to something, to see something that they likely had not seen up until this point. And so, what we find here in this final I am statement I am the vine what we're going to see is that Jesus is driving them to the, the heart of what it means to be a people who, who live in light of the gospel, who obey his commands and live by the Spirit as we unpacked last week. Jesus, is in this text, is going to pull all the threads together for his disciples. He's going to pull all the threads. He's been, he's been hanging out there throughout all this teaching for three years. And he's going to pull them all together. And he's going to help us see how it is ultimately fulfilled in his work and through the church. And Jesus is going to teach them and he teaches us about the nature of the church and its fruitfulness, which will be the result, not of any human achievement, not of your achievement, not of my good works, but of the spiritual union that we have in Christ. That that is the most critical element to the fruit that you and I long to bear in our lives. That God will produce a fruit in this church through this true vine. That is the overwhelming point of this text. You bear fruit by abiding in Jesus. If I can just sum up this whole text, that's it. You bear fruit by abiding in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The fruit from our obedience is not a fruit of our own making, but is produced through Christ alone. So here's the sermon summary in a nutshell. As we await the return of Jesus, that's the whole context of this thing. Jesus is leaving. We're going to be waiting. 
As we wait for his return, we are called to bear God-glorifying fruit through our abiding in the true vine, Jesus. That's what it is. Now, originally, I was going to take this entire text, verses 1 through 11, and do that this morning. And as I got into the text and I realized on Friday, I was like, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't going to happen. We're going to be here a while if we do that. So I broke the text into two pieces. We're going to cover two points of how we bear fruit in part one today. And next week, we're going to talk about the other two points or the other two aspects of bearing fruit for Jesus. This morning, we're going to cover two main ideas. Okay, we're going to cover one that we must remain. The first aspect of bearing fruit for Jesus is we must remain connected to the source of our fruitfulness. And then the next aspect is we must recognize what it means to um, embrace the means of our fruitfulness, right? Remain connected to the source of our fruitfulness is point one. And the next one will be how to embrace the means of our fruitfulness. And then next week we'll talk about the purpose of our fruitfulness. That our purpose, the fruitfulness is not for you. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about glorifying God. And then the benefit if we embrace that fruitfulness. So that'll be next week, okay? So we're going to look at the verse eight verses this morning, or yeah, seven verses this morning um, to help us get a, to make sure we put this in manageable chunks because there's a lot of good things here that I want us to really revel in this morning, okay? So this first point, right? We must remain connected to the source of our fruitfulness. We see this in verses one through three, right? I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser, the gardener. That's... That's the first thing we need to notice about being connected to the source of our fruitfulness. To notice that I am. Again, we've, I've already touched on it, but what's significant about this I am statement is it's the last one. In a lot of ways, this I am statement is the apex of all the I am statements that Jesus has been unpacking throughout the Gospel of John. I am statements, if you're not familiar with what they, what, what they serve in John's Gospel, here's what they do. They show us the way Jesus is the ultimate, um, let me get technical with you, antitype of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. In other words, he's the ultimate fulfillment of everything that God promised in the Old Testament. So he is the ultimate Israel. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate temple. All that rests in him and him alone. And so all these I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these are fulfillments of what the Old Testament has been pointing to the entire time. Amen. We have to read the Bible this way. We have to. If you read the Bible, if you don't, then what we do is we end up disconnecting the Old Testament from the New Testament, and you end up, I believe, with a very, very, very thin Jesus. Anyway, so he says here, I am the vine. And again, it is the climax of all the I am statements because it's reserved only for the ears of his disciples. It's the only one of the I am statements that's not public. And it's why? Because they, the, this people is going to embody everything it means to be the true vineyard of Jesus by connected, being, staying connected to the vine. The rest of the world would never understand that. And so this could only be understood by the the true vineyard of Jesus, the true vineyard of God in its essence. Jesus is showing most clearly that his mission is one that fulfills the decrees of God, who is the ultimate gardener. That's that word vine dresser. 
And, and again, the Jews would have understood this imagery. They would have understood this idea of being in the vineyard, of being a part of the true vine. Again, as I said earlier, the Old Testament, um, we find that it is Israel who is that very vineyard that God has been planting. That's common throughout as we read through the Old Testament. And so what we got to understand is that for Jesus to be the true vineyard, he's bringing to life he brings to life and sustenance to the vineyard that God is creating. So when he says, I am the true vine, he is now showing Israel and all of true Israel, not just all of Israel ethnic, ethnically, but all of true Israel, that he is the only means for them to actually be the people and be the vineyard that God has created them to be. Amen. Because the, though Israel would have been happy to embody being the vineyard, they had turned into a wild vineyard. The Bible says this over and over again. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very well and on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewned out a wine vat in it and he looked for, a, for, for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. So even though God had planted this vineyard, this vineyard had never developed and become everything that God wanted his vineyard to be because it was absent of something. It was absent of the true vine that nourishes that vineyard, that keeps that vineyard, that actually produces the kind of fruit that vineyard is supposed to create. And that vineyard, that vine, of course, is Jesus. So saying Jesus is the true vine is not to say that somehow or another Israel was a false vine or a false vineyard. Rather, it's what James Boyce, I think, says most clearly. He is, Jesus is the one, perfect, essential, and enduring vine before which all other vines are but shadows. Israel failed to be the vineyard of God because they did not recognize that they were the shadow of something bigger and better than themselves. Isaiah then comes back to this idea in 53, Isaiah 53, because we all know this passage, right? He grew up before him like a young plant, verse 2, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and was esteemed, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with him wounds that we are healed. His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, the wild grapes. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the true vine that keeps the vineyard from producing wild grapes. This is everything Jesus wants us to see here in this passage. And if we don't get that from verse 1, we will fail to see the implications of the fruit you and I bear from the passage, from the rest of this passage. Jesus is the one who, by his very nature, is the true vine, and he brings forth the fruit unto the Father that Israel continually fails to do. See, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing true Israel, the true church. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. But it's not only that here we see in this verse, in verse 1, that God has established this vineyard, 
But it's important that we recognize he, how he intends to nourish this vineyard. Amen. Of how the gardener attends to this vineyard. How he attends to this vine. How he intends to the branches that proceed from this vine. It says here in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So the gardener is not just produced the vine. He actually is very much involved in how the vine produces fruit. This is what happens in our lives. This is how God intends it. Look at what it says here. It says here um, that, he, uh, that, it, that, that every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, that's uh, not really the clearest in, in, in the Greek, okay? So, and I don't like to do this a lot, but sometimes we have to make sure we understand. Takes away in different versions may say he cuts off. That's a little closer. It's a little closer. But the word there is eros. And it's commonly translated cuts off, but really it's better understood as lifts up and it's more consistent with what a gardener does. If you know anyone who has a vineyard and you know what they do with their vines, you know that it's what's most natural to the gardener is that as he sees this vine droop and fall to the ground, he recognizes that if this vine's hitting the ground, the fruit will be misaligned. It'll be wild grapes that'll produce, right? He has to lift that vine up. And then as he lifts that vine up, any branch that's trying to weigh down that vine, he's going to snap off. He's going to cut off. So it's both lifts up and cut off at the same time. He lifts up that vine because it's a vine that's not the problem. It's the branches that come off the vine that go wild, right? And so that's what he's saying here. Anyone who does not produce fruit, he cuts off. He lifts up and then cuts off. He does this, and he says he prunes branches as well. So pruning is different than cutting off. So there's branches that come from the vine, but the branches, not all the branches are bad. The branches, like you and I, should be the good branches that come off that produce good fruit, but sometimes the branches need to be pruned so that they can grow in a healthy way. You know this. Amen. You know this. You've, if you've done anything with a little bit of a green thumb, we have hydrangeas. Is that hydrangeas, right? Hydrangeas in the front of our house. I, I never remember these things. I'm not a gardener. And uh, Amanda put these little miniature ones out there, and uh, I was unimpressed. I ain't gonna lie to you. She puts these things out there, and there's like five of them around the front of our house. She changes all of our shrubbery out. And I came home one day and like October after we put these things in, and she had cut these during things all the way down to the root. I mean, just come down to the root. And I was like, what did you do? What did you do? And she said, you got to do this because they'll grow more fuller and more stronger, you know, more strong in the, in the future, stronger in the future. Amen. Well, did you know that she was right about that? <laughs> Who knew? But this is exactly what happens, right? God is producing fruit, but he has to prune. He has to cut off. Those two things are not the same. And so the branches that continually go wild and want to pull the vine down, God's going to cut off. But the branches that are producing fruit, he prunes. And that pruning, as you might imagine, doesn't feel always feel great, right? And we don't know that they have, the branches have feelings, but you know what it feels like to be pruned in your own life. And, and you've got to understand that if you look at how God does this, he doesn't do this in reverse. God doesn't go, let's go produce fruit so that you can be part of it. He's not going out there and going, ooh, there's a nice grape. Let's see if we can staple it onto the vine. That doesn't work, right? He's not looking for the fruit first and then try to put the fruit on the vine. That's what some of our friends who understand salvation incorrectly, they want us to produce fruit first. So that we're saved. But stapling fruit on a vine ends up doing what? Just rotting. Because it's not really connected to the vine. It's just stapled on there. 
Real fruit comes from the vine. And God does this in our lives so that we might produce the kind of fruit he wants in our lives. And so hopefully you can see what Jesus is really saying. That Old Testament Israel was a vineyard that was pulling down the vine. They were running wild. And God had to cut them off. But there's no wholesale replacement here. And I want to make sure you hear me say that what I'm not saying here. Because some will hear this and say, oh, so you believe, you're one of those guys who believes that Jesus is, uh, that, that the church replaces Israel. No, actually I do not. I believe the church displays true Israel. That's what covenantal theology believes. The church displays true Israel. That there was a visible Israel, and it was the, that was the wild fruit Israel, right? And then there's the spiritual Israel, the ones who really believed in the covenant promises. God ground themselves, and they were the ones that God, the Bible, Old Testament says, is the remnant. And that remnant sustains itself until Jesus comes, and then he makes the full Israel, the full true Israel, the full true church has been visible, visible because of Jesus and his work. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to his Jewish friends, if you are truly of me, you will bear fruit. Why? Because you're connected to me and you're not part of that branch that's bringing the vine down. But if you are going to be that, I'm afraid you're going to be cut off. The true Israel is not an ethnic people. It's a spiritual people who are resting in the covenant promises of God. All the way back to Abraham. You can see this already. So God tells Abraham to circumcise Isaac, but he says, also circumcise all in your household and uh, who else? His other son? Yeah? You know what I'm talking about? Were both of them true? No, they were not. One was a spiritual seed and one was not. That's what Galatians says in Galatians chapter 3. It's, the, it's those of faith who are the true seed of Abraham. See, the true Israel is always a spiritual people, not a physical, ethnic people. And the church is the display of everything God's been doing since the garden. And then he says there in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Again, just making sure he makes it abundantly clear. You are not producing the fruit, friend. It's the word of the gospel that bears fruit in your life. It's the word of the gospel that is, produces this thing in your life. It's the word of peace. It's the continual nourishing of the abiding ministry of the word that centrally always looks back at the work of God through redemption through his son Jesus. That is what produces fruit. True preaching of the, of the Bible is not picking out your favorite pet verses about your favorite pet issues and somehow or another crystallizing that into making it Christian. No. The Bible has one narrative, one story, and it is realized fully in Jesus. And when you preach the Bible, if that is not what you hear, you're not listening to true preaching. People who moralize the Bible, principalize the Bible, doesn't mean we can't do that in some places. But they do not ever bring us back to the work and personal work of Jesus are not preaching the Bible as God intended the Bible to be preached. It's not. So that's our first thing, right? That we must... Learn to rest, must learn to, to, to trust in, to remain connected to the source of our fruitfulness. That is the source of our fruitfulness, the vine dresser who's planted a vineyard and he sustains it with the vine, Jesus, and he prunes us 
And we're going to talk more about what that looks like. And that's what he says. The next thing is that we must embrace this means of our fruitfulness. Look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So then we get this word abide, or if you're using the CSB, it's remain. Both of them have the same idea. What does it mean to abide? What does it mean to remain? What it means is to continue. It means to endure. It means to rest in Christ while we await his return. While we abide, fruit will be born in us. It's not done in reverse, as I said earlier. You don't bear fruit to abide. You abide, which bears fruit. That's what it looks like for the Christian. Now, the question you might be asking is, then what, then what does it look like to bear fruit? What fruit should we see? Well, this is where things get fun. Because lots of people have their own definitions of fruit, but the fact, the scriptures are very clear what kind of fruit we should see. Repentance. Faith. Progressive holiness in, in our life and conduct. This is what the New Testament envisions as fruit. These are the distinguishing marks of a man who's, is living, who is a living branch of the true vine. Where these things are wanting in our lives, it is vain to talk about possessing grace when it's just dormant. There's no such thing as dormant grace. But where a man or a woman is enveloped fully in grace, there will be fruit. It may be smaller amounts of fruit. It may be larger amounts of fruit. God will do that. He's true. He is free to do that in our lives as he wishes. But where there is no fruit, there is no life. He that lacks these things, the Bible calls, dead while he yet lives. Ryle, I think, J.C. Ryle, you know I love to quote J.C. Ryle, says it, I think, as well. True grace, we must not forget, is never idle. It's never idle. It never slumbers. It never sleeps. It is a vain notion to suppose that we are living members of Christ if the example of Christ is the only satisfactory evidence of saving union between Christ and our souls. Where there is no fruit of the Spirit to be seen, there is no vital religion in the heart. The Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is always, always make Himself known in the daily conduct of those with whom He dwells. The Master Himself declares, Every tree is known by its own fruit. Luke 6, 44. And Paul tells us what this fruit is. Verse 6, I mean, uh, Galatians 5 uh, verse 16 through, then, through 26. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So then to know fruit is, there's a, there's a, there's, you're either gratifying, you're either having the fruit of the flesh, or you're having the fruit of the Spirit. He says what the fruit of the Spirit is. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are also against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the spirit, that is the fruit of the flesh. But he doesn't say 
that it's the absence of these things that is the fruit. He's actually not gotten to the fruit yet. Here's what he says, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control, thing against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, he says, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, and let us, become conceit, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. What he's saying here in this wonderful passage is, you and I can't dissect this passage and say, well, I got the fruit of love, but I don't have the fruit of generosity. I got the fruit of this, but I don't have the fruit of that. That's not what he's saying there. We're not called, we're not called to fruits of the Spirit. We're called, these are all the fruit, one fruit of the Spirit. All of these things will be growing in different, in different ways in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is not the avoidance of certain activities or behaviors, but it is the fruit of grace that is never idle. That it's never, and it's always producing what we see here in this, in verses 22 through 25 there in Galatians 5. We don't, dare I say, we can't produce the fruit that the fruit that is produced in us through the abiding, uh, abiding in Christ. We do not produce that fruit, but that fruit is produced in us through the abiding in Christ. Notice verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So what he's getting in here now is that you got, okay, so then what is true fruit versus maybe what is false fruit? There's a difference. True fruit, very, very simply here in verse 5, is this. It's found only in Christ. Only in Christ. Not in good religious behavior, not with bumper stickers that tell the world what team you're on. Good fruit is only found in Jesus. And there is much fruit that seeks to pose as the fruit of Christ. We know it. You've probably seen it. And any fruit that is born apart from Christ though it may appear to be in Christ, is not really fruit of Christ at all. What would that be? Well, let me tell you what it would be. Pietism. Fundamentalism, if you will. Now, and I don't mean fundamentals in terms of fundamentals of Scripture. I'm talking about fundamentalism that kind of creates a certain culture that we are trying to imbibe in people that's extra to the Bible. It's legalism. It's legalism at the end of the day. That is, that is false fruit. There's a lot of false fruit in the church at times because we will then drive people insane with all of, our, all of our little jot and tittle about what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And you're really a true believer if you do this. You're really a true believer if you don't do that. Just go look on your social media page and you'll find out exactly what people think you should, what it means for you to be a true Christian. That's not the fruit of Christ. The fruit of Christ is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, joy, good works. That's the fruit. But it's not that we need to recognize the true fruit from the false fruit. Here's what true fruit really is. It's always abundant. He says, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, this fruit is so rich. It is so 
tasty. That we, because if we are experiencing grace, we are being sustained in our faith, and we have an ongoing repentance from our sin, not this self-generated justification processes that we've put into our lives. But we are so resting in the person and work of Jesus that that then bears fruit of love, joy, peace, case, and kindness in the world, and it sets forth the world a different ethic of what it means to be human. Unfortunately, we are erecting a lot of new rules to what it means to be human today. And friends, that's on both sides of the cultural divide. Both sides. But God intends us to develop that fruit through the means in which he's given us. Not pietism, not legalism, not some cultural fundamentalism. Rather, the means of grace of the church. Amen. One of our brothers who was in the class this morning was talking about giving his testimony, and I won't go into detail about it, but I was so encouraged by it because when he was in a spiritually bad place, he still felt the church was part of his life. And that means of grace kept him steady. It hemmed him in. Friends, if, when you're in a weak place, you need to run to the church. Not separate yourself from the church because it's a means of grace that God has ordained for your life. The Sabbath day worship, we say this all the time, but it's so true. This hems us in. This keeps us steady because I don't know about you, but there's a, I, I walk with some wobbly legs from time to time Monday through Saturday. Do you? Word, sacrament, and prayer, these are the things that God intends to produce the rich fruit of experiential grace, the rich fruit of sustaining faith, the rich fruit of ongoing repentance from our sin. This is what we should see in our lives. False fruit, false means of grace are those areas where we seek to make the Bible prop up our own interests and our own pet concerns. That's not fruit of Christ not. Ryle again, trial, to speak plainly, he says, is the instrument by which the Father in heaven makes Christians more holy. By trial, he calls out their passive graces and proves whether they can suffer his will as well as do it. By trial, he weans them from the world and draws them to Christ. He drives them to the Bible and prayer and shows them their own hearts and makes them humble. This is the process by which he purges them, prunes them, makes them more fruitful. The lives of the saints in every age are the best and truest comment on the text. Isn't that amazing? I love that. The lives of the saints in every age are the best and truest comment on the text. Never, hardly do we ever find an eminent saint, either in the Old Testament or in the New, who has not purified by suffering and, like his master, a man of sorrow. The trial that we face in life is not against the principalities of the world, but it's the war within our own hearts to be conformed to the image of Jesus as we are being connected and remain connected to the vine. That's the trial, because that's not an easy battle. My mortification from, of my sin is the greatest battle I face. It is the greatest battle this church faces. 
not anything else. But then also notice in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Your fruit, my fruit, has dire implications. All of those branches that he lops off are thrown in the fire. That's easy enough. But even those hard places where we're bearing fruit, but maybe not, could not, we could bear more fruit, and he's trimming, and he's pruning, and he's shaping in our lives. Like how we remain connected to the vine and the painful process of God pruning us does result in painful things in our lives. And God will then, and he takes those things that are not natural to being part of the vineyard, and he trims them off, and he throws it into the fire. And he, here's a couple implications for you from this text. One, our fruit is tested through suffering and trial. Christians get soft when we don't have suffering and trials. Suffering is part of the fruit-bearing process in the church. And we must recognize that our sanctification, our ongoing transformation, is often a painful reality. It's never an easy drive, Sunday afternoon drive. I know that's why we like it. I know we go into Christian bookstores and we see all the cute little tchotchkes that are sitting around and we just hope that I can have those little things sitting under my, on my desk and on my wall and all of a sudden, ooh, I'm just good with Jesus. That's never been the way God's worked in my life. I doubt it has in your life too. But the second implication of this text, text is very simple. The fruit is tested over time. He tests your fruit over time. The fruit we wish to bear does not happen overnight. We must recognize our sanctification is, is time-consuming. But even if it's time-consuming, understand that we get to this last point here, last verse in verse 7, there's going to be a reward in the end. And he, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, we're going to unpack this a lot more next week, but let's just touch on this verse for a second. Ask whatever you wish. If you're abiding in Jesus, ask for whatever you wish. Now, now what does that mean? Well, you, you already know what it doesn't mean, right? But do I have to say it? It's not prosperity gospel. It's not your best life now. It's not your health, wealth, and prosperity jargon. No, what it means is what Hebrews 10 has in view. Verse uh, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with, the heart, with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another uh, in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as are the habit of some, the habit of some are doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's what it means to ask. Because of God's sustaining grace in your life, because of his mercy in your life, you have every right, you have the biggest, most 
wide open invitation from the God of the universe. And he says, come on in, son. Come on in, daughter. Whatever you're bringing to me, it's okay. And you come into the throne room of grace and you come boldly. You come boldly. Your sins are ever forgiven. And God joyfully restores the repentant one of his vineyard. He joyfully hears and answers the cries of his people who desire to see more fruit. The fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith, the fruit of experiential grace, the fruit of an expanding church that bears more fruit around our community and around our globe. I said it a couple weeks ago. If you want to see Grace Church grow and you want to see Grace Church expand, pray for it. Well, this is what we're talking about. It means our prayer is meaningful. It means it's an abiding truth in Christ alone. God's people must pray. They must come boldly to the throne of grace. Individually, yes, but corporately as well. I hope that you will find time to come occasionally to our prayer time on, sun, on every other Wednesday. I think you'll find it to be a rich time. There's a few of the saints who do that. And uh, I've been so encouraged the last couple of times of joining. I haven't always been able to come, but it's been so good. Because God's people crying out to the Lord, asking Him to do what we can't do for ourselves. Why? Because He loves His people. He loves you, church. He's careful and patient with His people. Even sin-wounded people. He's patient with those who are of contrite heart who come. He's gentle in His discipline and restoration of His people. So as we finish up, when we conclude, let's remember, one, that Jesus is the true source of the fruit that we are called to bear. Two, the fruit-bearing work is often a painful and long process. And three, we are free to enter the throne room of grace continually and often and be restored to the work God has called us to do. Don't hang on to that sin. Don't hang on to that misery. Bring it to the Lord, and He will restore you. And so as we return to the Lord's table this morning, that's why we have do this weekly. It's a means of grace whereby we seek to visibly remind ourselves of the covenant bond that has been established between God and us in His true vineyard. And I pray that as you do this morning, it will comfort you in a unique and abiding way. Father, help us now. As we